Let me open us with a word of prayer, and then we will get started in 1 Peter chapter 2. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for the blessings of the church. I thank you for my brothers and sisters in Christ that gather week after week with us here at Lakeside. I thank you for the fellowship we have, the encouragement we have, even just the the comfort of seeing familiar faces, Lord, what a blessing it is to know that we have a place in your family. And I ask, Lord, that you would meet us here today. We come from many different weeks. Some have had easy weeks that are just full of praise, and some have had very, very difficult weeks that are challenging at every moment, and perhaps some feel like they're barely hanging on. Lord, you know each of our hearts, and I pray that you will minister to each one of us in the manner that we need I pray that as we go through the teaching of 1 Peter, that you would illuminate our minds so that we could understand your truth and the glories of our salvation. And I pray also that as Pastor Steve gets ready to teach this morning and then this evening, that you will be with us and help us have hearts that are receptive to your word. And also, Lord, as we look and see the elements set up already for communion, we're reminded of our need to make sure that our accounts with you are short, that we've repented of known sin. Pray, Lord, that you would help us to do that, so that if we come to your table in a few moments, we will come in a worthy manner. Lord, we love you. Pray that you would bless us in everything that we do today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, as I indicated, we are going to finally this morning come to the end of 1 Peter chapter 2. I've been dealing with the last little section for quite a while. And I think the substance of our text this morning, which really is the last verse of chapter 2, verse 25 in our English Bibles, I think it's relatively straightforward. I'm going to clarify one thing that could be a source of confusion, but basically I think the teaching of our text is straightforward, but it is profound and it is, I believe, very, very comforting. And as we come to the end of our text today, and at the end of this section, we really are on the doorstep of why I wanted to teach First Peter in the first place. And it all has to do with chapter 3. But you can't get to chapter 3 without going through chapters 1 and 2. So I'm going to come back to where we are going. But all of this is really the context for living holy. I, I've... Every time I teach, I give a brief summary of what the purpose of First Peter is. I do that partly to remind you, but also to remind me on a regular basis why I believe this book is in the Bible. should be second nature to you. First Peter was written to believers who in many cases had hard lives and faced real hardships and in many cases real persecution. Life was difficult, both physically and spiritually And Peter was writing to encourage them in their faith and to show them regardless of the trials they were facing that they could endure and they could live lives pleasing the Lord. And that centered around the call to be holy. The overarching theme of the entire Bible for God's children is be holy as I am holy. And that's Peter's call to us. And Peter's call to us to be holy, even in the midst of unfairness and persecution and injustice, is not a pipe dream. It's not a call to do something that's impossible. Well, we're sinners, so we got no hope. No, it's 
pointing out to us the reality that when God's Spirit indwells us and God's Word is placed in front of us, we can walk in obedience no matter what. And everything comes back to the person and work of Jesus Christ. I think the teaching that I'm going to do in the next weeks and months on chapter 3 is going to stretch us. It's going to stretch us perhaps even in our own lives, but it's going to stretch us in the lives of our family and friends around us and those in the church. And if we aren't centered on Jesus Christ, it will all seem like foolishness. So in the midst of calling us to practical exhortations, Peter is unloading deep theology. He wants us to understand God rightly so that we can think rightly about God in the midst of our sin-filled world. He knows that unless we think correctly about ourselves in relation to God and our struggle against sin, which by design requires correct thinking about Jesus and what He did on the cross we will not be able to make the choices that God desires for us. One of the things that the Bible actually stresses over and over again, and yet throughout the centuries of the church, it's quite often missed, is that Christianity, our lives in Christ, is not just about doing things. We have things to do. Don't misunderstand. There's a lot we're supposed to do but we realize unbelievers can do things. That's why people have been in the bondage of legalistic, false religious systems, because they're doing something. The Christian life is about a complete transformation of our hearts and minds, which will lead to certain actions, but the actions aren't to gain that transformation, they're because of that transformation. Peter called us to be holy, for example, and then immediately launches into serious theology. I'm going to read from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 17 to 21, just showing how the call to holiness is tied to truth. If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing... Again, appeal to our mind, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God." Everything goes together. Theology is lived out in practice. So as Peter goes on to call us to do challenging things in chapter 2 of submitting to the government even when the government is unjust and submitting to our masters in our context today, our employers, even if they're unfair, it's not in a vacuum. It's not just a generic, this is a nice way to be. This is always tied back into, this is the proper response because of what Jesus Christ did. And in these last verses of chapter 2, as we've been studying over the last weeks and actually months because of a break in our teaching, Peter appeals to Jesus to put everything in context. This is a crucial text practically and theologically, and it can transform your lives if we truly contemplate what is taught. So, 
Read along with me, and as you know, I had broken this text into a four-part outline. I'm going to read the text, then I'm just going to briefly review the outline. I'm not going to go back and reteach what was there, and then we'll get to our final point. So, if you follow along with me in 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose... Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Again, as a, by way of review, I had broken this up into four truths for enduring injustice with godliness. Again, the immediate context was the injustice that you might have to endure from the government or the injustice you might have to endure from your employer. But there are four truths in this text for enduring injustice with godliness. The first was that God's children are called to suffer. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you. It just goes hand in hand. If you're a believer at some point in your life, it's an expectation you'll partake of the sufferings that also afflicted Christ. Secondly, God's Son is the perfect example says explicitly, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. We do what Jesus did, both positively and negatively. Negatively, he never sinned. He didn't sin in action. He didn't sin with words. Positively, he kept entrusting himself to God the Father. We talked about that at length. Jesus was content to place everything in the hands of God the Father to do according to his will. And then last week we talked about the fact that third point, the cross ensures our ultimate victory. Regardless of what injustice you're suffering, regardless of what you're going through, ultimately we win. Praise the Lord. And he himself bore our sins and his body on the cross So that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. This is all a spiritual transaction. Christ became a curse to us, the clear imagery alluding to a text from Deuteronomy about one who's cursed of God who hangs on a tree. And Jesus endured all of that, not for his own sins, he never sinned, but for our sins. In the midst of our belief that we are suffering injustice, which quite often we are, we understand that we're the beneficiaries of the greatest injustice of all times, which is our sins were placed on Christ's account. We were given a free pass, but it was not truly free because Christ suffered for it. We all play the Monopoly game and we see a get-out-of-jail-free card, except that there was a price paid. It's wrong to ever think that your salvation meant that no suffering was made for your sins. You may not suffer, but Christ suffered. But because of what he did, by his wounds, we are healed spiritually. We're freed from the curse of death. We're freed 
from God's judgment. We're freed from God's wrath because the judgment and wrath was poured out on Christ. And that brings us to our final point. So there were four truths for enduring injustice with godliness. God's children are called to suffer. God's son is the perfect example. The cross ensures our ultimate victory in the fourth point. God continually cares for and keeps his own. God continually cares for and keeps his own. God is so gracious to us. And it is encouraging to see reinforced in Scripture that He never stops caring for us. Even in the midst of hardships, even in the midst of our own sinful responses to hardships, God patiently keeps us in His care. This is what Peter is emphasizing as we come to the end of what we call chapter 2. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. For you were continually straying like sheep really ties into what we had just talked about, that by his wounds we are healed. It's talking about the complete spiritual transformation of our lives that came about At that moment when our hearts were regenerated and we repented and turned to Christ. The beginning of verse 25 is just reminding us what we were before we were saved. For you were continually straying like sheep. All unregenerate human beings are in this category. Now, we don't have to, well, I don't think most of us are shepherds. It could be that one of you is a shepherd and I just don't know it. (laughs) So everything I would say about sheep is just from reading other things. They're helpless. They're not aggressive creatures. They can't defend themselves. I'm told that they're not capable of finding their way from point A to point B. I remember as a kid, I would ride my bike miles from my house and my dog would follow and then my dog would just walk off. But the dog would always be at home at night. She could find her way home. I'm told a sheep can't do that. The sheep's not coming back. As one commentator put it, talking about sheep, notoriously dull, prone to stray, and helpless to find their way back. And you can imagine at that time they wander away. They're easy pickings for some wild animals that are going to have a nice meal. This really is a picture of all human beings in our natural state. We're going away from God from birth. It's the reality of what it means to be born into sin. We've inherited a sin nature, which despite what we might ever think, means that at a beginning point of our life, we're running from God. I always marvel at people that think that human beings are basically good. Now certainly we have some good elements within us because every single human being has the image of God within himself or herself. But if you've ever had kids, you understand you don't have to teach your kids to sin. It's just hardwired. It always marvels me that anybody that has kids could think kids are basically good. Because at the earliest age, they're lying, 
They're strong-willed. They're defiant. They're disobedient. The straying starts then, but it doesn't stop. Because you understand, just because you grow up doesn't make you more compliant or more obedient. No, if anything, you're running away from God even faster. We're going away from God from birth, and there is no hope that we can ever, on our own, find our way back to God. Jesus talks about the wide gate and the narrow gate. We're on the interstate with everybody else going to hell. And we can never even find or see the narrow gate apart from the work of Christ. For you were continually straying like sheep. It wasn't an isolated thing. It wasn't an occasional thing. This is who we were. We are easy prey for Satan and his demons. And we really have no hope at all. And you look around and you see it all the time. People following other people right off a cliff. The imagery Peter used probably is familiar to us, but it certainly was very clear to the original recipients who were primarily from a Jewish background. It's from Isaiah 53. I'm going to read from this section. I'm only going to read a portion of it, but Isaiah 53 is a a very famous messianic reference. It's talking about Christ and his suffering. But at Isaiah 53, beginning at verse 3 to 6, we're going to see the imagery that's clearly being referenced by Peter. He, talking about the Messiah, was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. You see that's the same imagery Peter's using. Talking about our healing by Christ's wounds. And then talking about what we were healed from. The point for us is apart from Jesus Christ, we would have kept wandering. Each one doing what's right in his own eyes. Doing what we want. Never turning towards the Lord's, always turning towards the desires of our own sinful hearts. That really is the crossroads for everyone who genuinely does come to faith. Is you still have to kill that desire to go my own way. This is why the picture Peter is painting is so precious to us and such an encouragement to us, particularly in the midst of injustice, because it helps us think differently about our circumstances and not look in the mirror and say, how can I fix it? But it helps us to turn to the Lord who saved us and say, Lord, I trust you. So when Peter talks about continually straying like sheep, I think clearly a reference is to Isaiah 53. But another image jumped into my mind, and I'm sure some of you even probably thought of it as I was talking about it, and it becomes very personal. So sometimes you can look at an Old Testament text, and it is, we understand the value of it to us, but it's talking in a broader sense, 
But as I think about the sheep that strays, I come to what Jesus said in Luke 15, 4 to 7. Luke chapter 15, verse 4 to 7. He said, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. Verse 7. I tell you in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. That's what Christ did when he saved you and when he saved me. He came looking for us personally, individually. He wasn't looking for the whole flock at that moment. He was looking for you. And in the midst of injustice, what a comfort to know we were found. At the moment of our salvation, there was rejoicing in heaven. That's hard to comprehend because we aren't worth it. Not on our own. I've seen over and over in my Christian life when somebody famous claims to come to faith, everybody gets excited and thinks it's a great thing. It's no greater in heaven than a lowly person that nobody else on the planet knows that comes to faith. And that's what most of us are. The lowly people. The forgotten people. If we drop off the face of the earth, except for our small circle, nobody cares. You lose a president or a prime minister, everybody stops. They won't stop when we go. But God still cares for us. And there was rejoicing in heaven when we came to faith. We were wandering away in a wicked world and God found us. And he picked you up and he carried you back to be a part of his family. That's what's really being alluded to in the remainder of the verse. But now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Now the word translated return doesn't mean that you used to be in God's family. Then you walked away from God's family. Now you came back. No, it really just has to do with repentance. It's talking about a 180. You were headed away from God and then you turned to Christ. Obviously we know it's because of the work of the Lord transforming our hearts. But when we turned, when we repented... We fell under God's care. He opened our eyes and we ran into his arms. And from that point forward, God always cares for us. That's what he's trying to convey to us. Shepherd and guardian of your souls. A shepherd, of course, is the ultimate protector and hope of a lost sheep. That was Jesus' analogy. The shepherd's the one that goes and finds him. When God came for us, he made it us a part of his flock. In fact, later in this book, Peter's going to be talking about the role of pastors. And he's going to use this same idea for the pastors of the church of our role caring for the souls of our people. And Jesus is set forth as the chief shepherd. But the idea is that we're no longer wandering on our own waiting to be picked off by the first wolf that comes along. No, we've got a shepherd now. And the word guardian is translated elsewhere, overseer. We see that over and over in the 
the Bible for referring to the pastors of churches, the elders. If any of you aspires to the office of overseer, it's a good thing. An overseer must be in all these qualifications. In fact, many translations have the word overseer. My translation has guardian, but many others have overseer. Taken together, these words show how tenderly and lovingly and perfectly God cares for his children. One commentator wrote this description in this double phraseology. It shows that God, quote, not only leads, feeds, and sustains his own, but also guides, directs, and protects them. God takes care of us on a daily basis, but it's looking even beyond that because it talks about our souls. God cares about our physical bodies. He provides us food and shelter, and he understands those issues. It's a reference in the scriptures. If you're sick, you call the elders and pray to God. So God cares about our physical being, but this care that's being referenced here for our souls transcends just these physical bodies. It's ultimately talking about our eternal security. God cares for us now in the midst of our injustice, but God's care transcends our injustice. It's not just a care to see us through, it's a care that's going to keep us for all eternity. We are safe in the hands of the Lord. Now, I'm going to emphasize this. I'm going to allude to some scriptures that talk about this. But believe it or not, this has critical application for what's coming about wives and husbands. It's interesting how often Jesus uses, and it's used of Jesus, the terminology of caring for his redeemed. I'm going to read several different texts, one from Matthew, three from John, that really just reinforce this imagery. I think it's interesting, Jesus in Matthew 9.36, seeing the unredeemed, said, seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Again, that's us in our straying state. But then Jesus starts applying this to his work. In John 10, and all three next references are in John 10, but John 10, verse 11, it says this, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. A few verses down in John 10, verses 14 to 15. Again, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And one of the most Comforting verses in the Bible in John chapter 10, verses 27 to 28. I go back to this verse so many times. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. That's the work of a shepherd and overseer of our souls. The injustices we face are real. There may come a time where we face real persecution from our government. Many of you understand and deal with hardships in work setting, in your work setting. And ultimately, 
as we're going to cover in starting in chapter 3, many of you understand what it is to deal with hardship in the home. Ultimately, as Peter's calling us to live holy, and he's calling us to endure injustice, and he's calling us to submit to the government, and he's calling us to submit to our masters slash employers, and he ultimately is about to call wives to submit to husbands, some of them not even obedient to the word, and as he calls husbands to live with their wives in a certain way, it's all made possible by the work of Christ and by the confident assurance we have that we're safely in God's hands. No matter what our circumstances. I mentioned that I I love the text in John 10 because nothing will snatch us out of his hands. I also think often of Romans 8, verses 35 to 39. And as I read these words, some of you may perhaps even have it memorized, but as I read these words, they'll be familiar to you. But in the context of what Peter has been talking about, of submitting of not retaliating. When being reviled, we don't revile in return. When suffering, we utter no threats. All these truths come to bear. Paul says at Romans 8, beginning at verse 35, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword... You could really just summarize any hardship that any believer was finding right there. Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death. All day long we were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God who is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Whatever we're going through, we have that assurance. If you know Christ, you have a perfect shepherd and guardian of your souls. Perfect. You're never going to be forgotten. No matter what you're going through, God didn't forget you. No matter what situation you find yourself in, it wasn't an oops, sorry, God missed it. Even in the midst of unspeakable difficulties, God is there. And He went and found you. And He didn't go to find you to make you be tormented. He went to find you to care for you. And what you have to realize is even in the midst of the hardships, he's still there, watching over your souls. That's the perfect picture of security and comfort and hope. Even if we are currently enduring misery and suffering and pain and tears, we truly have all that we need. We do. But it requires us to think correctly about everything. Only if we get our eyes off of this world and the myriad of challenges that are running at us from every direction and place our focus on Christ can we do all of these things.
It really is transformative thinking. It changes everything. People come to me many, many times, it's the nature of being a pastor, and start to ask for help with their problems. I can normally tell within five minutes whether I can help them. Because I can tell how they're thinking. And sometimes people want to obey the Lord. They just need help doing it. I can help them. But some people refuse to think biblically about life, and it's hard. Because I know, unless God does a work, I can't break through. Because when I tell them to trust God, they're going to say, but. When I tell them to be patient, they say, but. When I say all of the things that I'm about to say over the next weeks and months in marriage counseling, quite often it's, but. And I know then it's going to be hard for me. I'm still going to meet with people. I'm still going to pray for them. I'm still going to give them counsel. But at that point, I'm praying for them to have ears to hear because they've got to think differently to get through it. Again, all of this is the backdrop for the study that we're about to begin on chapter 3. We're going to be talking about some hard things in the coming weeks. They really are hard. Some of you will know how hard because you've lived it out and you have marriages that didn't endure. Some of you have been divorced or some of you have horrible marriages that you endured in years past. I think it's interesting. I was reflecting on this as I was preparing to teach and as I'm thinking ahead of what's coming, most of the direction given in scriptures to husbands and wives isn't given to people who have perfect marriages. They're already doing those things. But what you learn the longer you live is there aren't any perfect marriages. Sometimes we think everybody else has that, but we don't. Nobody does. As we deal with this, I ask you to pray for me in the coming weeks. I need prayer to teach these things correctly so that they come from the right place. I need prayer to live it out in my own life. But let me encourage you, pray for your own hearts. Even if you're single, don't think, well, I can skip for a couple of months because I'm not married right now. You know married people. And what you see, and what I think you will see, is that big Portions of the American church don't view marriage rightly. They don't view the relationship of husband and wife as the scripture views it. So let me encourage you, be in prayer for yourselves. If you're married, be in prayer for your own self, not your spouse. The point of me teaching is not, thank goodness, they're finally going to hear what they need to be doing. It's for you to look in the mirror. We're going to talk about wives. And we're going to talk about husbands. But again, you need to think of it in the context. Some of you are going to give counsel to your children. I've heard some of the worst counsel given by parents to their own married kids. In fact, I'm firmly convinced, and I say this, and my kids are 
two of my daughters are in adulthood now, so I understand this. I think more bad theology is adopted because parents are trying to react to their kids. So there's a lot for all of us to learn. If you're breathing, you're going to have impact on other marriages, whether you're married or whether you're single. What's fascinating to me is the things that we're going to cover are very simple in one sense. It's not mysterious, hidden truth, but it's really hard to apply. It's really hard. In fact, some of the things I'm going to teach about when I've taught on them, I've endured more hostility for these truths than just about anything else I've done since I've been at Lakeside. As I think through what has made people mad at me, and there have been a lot of people mad at me over the years, as I think about some people who have left Lakeside because of the counsel I've given, over and over again it comes back to the counsel of First Peter chapter 3. So I'm excited, but I'm also entering into this with some trepidation. So pray for yourselves, pray for me. And pray that the Lord will use the text that we're covering next to transform our marriages and our lives. But all of it has a context. And it all comes back to the work of Christ. Everything that we're going to talk about for husbands and wives has a context. To Jesus' example and His taking our sins on His body And knowing that once he saved us, we have a guardian, a shepherd, caring for our souls. Let me close our teaching time in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you that you care for us. Lord, these truths are in one sense simple, and yet they're so elusive when we're going through hardships. Lord, there are many here who even this week have in the honesty of their emotions, cried out the words of Jesus, My God, why have you forsaken me? Lord, when life is difficult and the rain is falling and the floods are coming and we don't have any protection, or so it seems, we feel like we're accursed. We feel like we're forgotten. Lord, if we're not careful and our thinking is wrong, we see the joy of the Lord on everyone else's faces and it almost feels like a cruel joke. Lord, help us think rightly. Our salvation isn't a means for you to inflict harm on us. It is the evidence of your ultimate love for us, that you came and searched out us as lost sheep and you individually redeemed us. Lord, Satan would whisper lies to us. Our own, at times, selfish pride can cause us to think wrongly because we we think we deserve so much more. Lord, help us think true thoughts. Help us think biblically. Help us to remember the truths that we have been taught. 
that Christ's life was an example, but His death was everything. He redeemed us. And our salvation, Lord, guarantees that even in the midst of hardships, You care for us. I pray, Lord, that we will rest in You and entrust ourselves to You regardless of our circumstances. And in the coming weeks and months, I pray, Lord, that You'll teach us truths about the roles of wives and husbands in marriage. And I pray that it will transform marriages. It will transform the individual hearts of wives and in the individual hearts of husbands. And I pray that ultimately it will bring You praise as Your people repent of sin and turn to righteousness. We pray these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.